This is a HeadGum Podcast. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover. And, uh, you know, America knows the impact of disease now more than ever, don't we? (laughs) It's destroyed our collective year with more than 200,000 people dead and at least 7.25 million Americans infected with COVID-19. Disease is the central fact of 2020. I think we can all agree with uh, politics running a close second for now. Uh, Could overtake it if we are that unlucky. But the truth is... COVID-19 is hardly our only epidemic right now, because for the last 20 years, we've actually been facing an opioid crisis that is so bad, it's led to the decline of American life expectancy, something that hasn't happened in a century. We've been going up, 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 living longer and longer for the last hundred years, and now we're going down in part because of the opioid crisis. The death rate from overdoses has gone up six times between 1999 and 2017. It has sextupled for you crossword puzzle doers out there in just less than 20 years. And that's resulted in nearly half a million deaths and thousands more in opioid-related suicides. It is a true epidemic that is costing us countless lives. So how do we get here? Well, The story starts with well-intentioned doctors in the 80s and 90s who started recognizing pain as something that their patients were struggling with, as being a rising condition that was really impacting people's life. And an idea grew, without much backup, that opioids were only addictive when used recreationally, that if you used them to treat, say, chronic back pain that ruins your days and haunts your dreams and makes your life a living hell, well, you wouldn't get addicted. That would just uh, make your pain feel better. Now, this idea was dead wrong, but in the mid-90s, the pharmaceutical industry, led by opioid villain Purdue Pharma, started aggressively pushing this supposed wonder drug, a time-released pain management miracle known as OxyContin. Ignorant American doctors who were misled by the marketing bought that company line, and it was far easier to get our crappy American health insurance to pay for pills than it was to get them to pay for physical therapy. So these pills started being prescribed in droves. The result? Fast forward a few decades later, and nearly 70% of all American overdose deaths involve an opioid. So... What do we do about this corporate-created crisis? Well, in the 80s, America took a zero-tolerance approach to drug abuse. Drugs were a moral bad that all good citizens, all upright folks, avoid. Drug dealers and even some users we thought needed to be sent to jail to fix their problem because it was their choice and their fault that they got hooked. And racism played a starring role in the drug war of the 80s and 90s, too, of course, because when it was black and brown people using and selling drugs, our society was happy to lock them up en masse, helping build the scaffolding of what we today call mass incarceration. But today, in 2020, we now know a lot more about addiction and how it works. And, frankly, because the opioid crisis now impacts a population largely white and often rural, our politicians have finally realized that a, quote, war on drugs is really a war on our own people. That's what it was all along, but they finally have caught up to that fact. We now understand that addiction is actually a medical issue. It's a health problem. And... When you're trying to deal with a health problem, you use different policy tools to address it than you do 
a moral one. For instance, you might focus on harm reduction that hopes first and foremost to stop people from dying as its very first goal. And then, for instance, you might seek replacement therapies like methadone treatment or etc. rather than moral instruction or imprisonment as the penalty for drug abuse. Addiction, we now know, and I hope most people are beginning to understand, is not a personal failing. It's a public health issue, just like COVID or diabetes. And that means that to address it, we need to look less to law enforcement and more to health uh, enflourishment, treatment, something like that. It's a health problem. We need to use health tools to deal with it. Okay, that's the point. So if we want to know how to deal with the opioid crisis, instead of talking to law enforcement, we need to talk to people who work in public health. And I'm so happy to say we have got one of those people here today. His name is Vikram Krishnasani, and he is a medical officer where he helps to fight the opioid crisis at the CDC in Atlanta. Now, the phrase CDC, when you hear those words uh, right now, you think you got some complex feelings, right? They've been in the news most recently for their tangle with uh, coronavirus and with, uh, let's say, the complex political situation they're in. Uh, and like I said, you may have a lot of feelings about them in that department. But I want to be really clear about something. The CDC is a critical medical institution in America that we will continue to need. And so many of the staff members there are incredibly smart public servants who are doing their damnedest to improve America's collective health every single day. And Dr. Krishnasamy is one of them. And he happens to be incredibly knowledgeable on this issue and to have done amazing work. He's actually the recent winner of a prestigious Service to America medal, or SAMI, which is kind like the Academy Award for Public Servants in recognition of the incredibly impactful work that he has done. So without further ado, let's get to the interview. Please welcome Dr. Vikram Krishnasamy. Vikram, thank you so much for being here. Hey, thanks, Adam. It's a real pleasure. Uh, so you work at the CDC. Uh, it's a busy time at the CDC generally. <laughs> uh, tell me a little bit about what you do there, just so we get a picture. What's it, what's life look like for a CDC person right now? Yeah, great question. I, I think right now times are a bit strange and different for us at CDC. I, I have been uh, full-time telework for uh, several months now uh, outside of my CDC office. But uh, normally, you know, I have I have a day job at CDC uh, where I typically work on addressing issues related to drug overdose, specifically the opioid crisis, and and I've been doing that for the last several years now. Got it. Well, yeah, I mean, it's funny because people, you know, we think of CDC right now, everyone thinks of COVID-19, coronavirus, but there are so many public health challenges that are facing us right now. And like one of the biggest ones that I've almost forgotten about since coronavirus started is the opioid crisis. Uh, tell me a little bit about about that. Can you give me a little bit of sense of the scope and, and you know, what what that looks like to you at the CDC? The opioid crisis is huge. It has killed hundreds of thousands of people over the last 20 years. And for every individual who dies of an overdose, there are many more people who may not have died uh, of an overdose. And then think of all of the friends and family and, and moms and dads, uh, brothers and sisters who are affected uh, yeah. by an individual who may have a, an addiction to opioids. So so the scope is, is just uh, huge. I mean, it's it's there, there are around 2 million people who suffer from an opioid use disorder, which is our fancy way of saying opioid addiction, uh, and others who may not even be diagnosed. So the problem has really escalated over the last 20 years. It's become uh, one of the big foci of the current administration in trying to determine how do we, how do we deal with this crisis, uh, the current drug crisis, and, and do things uh, in a better way than we have before. And what are the causes of it? I mean, I've actually even, you know, done a couple of years ago, we did a segment about this on, on my show, Adam Ruins Everything. It's a seven minute long segment. And I know our knowledge of it has progressed since then. So I'd love to hear from someone who really knows, like, what has caused that rise? Our knowledge has progressed quite a bit. And, and there are a number of factors that have weighed in and, and uh, caused the current opioid crisis. Uh, number one is we didn't recognize the addiction potential early. Uh, for these medications. Uh, number two, the drug companies uh, uh, peddled these medications to physicians and and really encouraged their uh, prescribing or prescribing these medicines so that uh, we could take care of pain. And and on another note, uh, pain really became one of the areas where we began to focus in on uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s to say, hey, how do we best control that pain? 
And opioids were one of the medications that were pushed to help uh, control some of the pain that folks in the U.S. were experiencing. And then all of that uh, was compounded by uh, illicit drugs. So think about fentanyl and heroin that were also on the market and people had pretty easy access to. You put all of those things together and you have what we're experiencing now, which is an enormous crisis that we're trying to address here at CDC. Wow. There's a lot to unpack there. And I, I kind of want to go through step by step. This is great. Um, so so pain. I, I've read about this, that like we've actually almost preceding the opioid crisis. There's been an epidemic of pain in America. Is that is that correct? Like what kind of pain? And that can be debilitating, too. Right. You're absolutely correct. There are millions of Americans that suffer from a mild to moderate pain. Uh, uh, and a subset of that, are, there are millions of folks who suffer from severe pain on a daily basis. And that in itself yeah. is debilitating. And we have to find good options to take care of pain to, to help people cope uh, and get back to living their normal lives. But these drugs, okay, so let's talk about the corporate side of it for a second. I know you work for the CDC. You probably don't want to go too hard on them, but, <laughs> but I would go as hard on them as you want. These companies, uh, you know, push these drugs. They advertise them really relentlessly to doctors. You know, they would, they, I, I remember they, they sent them all kinds of merchandise and things like that. Like this was a really, hey, let's get these drugs out in the market. They pushed them really hard. Did they know about the potential for addiction when they were pushing them in a, in a way that was, you know, inappropriate? I think that depends on who you ask. Mm -hmm. What I will say is that the addiction potential has become very apparent over the last 20 years, and if not earlier. And as these medications have become more frequently used, we have seen an increase in overdoses. And so that to us is, is really an area of concern. Now, I want to ask you about the doctor piece of it, because uh, that's a part that gets a lot of a lot of attention, a lot of blame. Often we have this image of the, you know, the profligate doctor who's just, you know, Dr. Feel Good, Dr. Hookup. Right. Um, as being like a big, big part of the problem. I've also read and, and by the way, on on our show, we advanced that narrative as well, because that was a big part of the narrative that was going on at the time. Um a couple years later, I, I became more aware of uh, coverage of, hey, the, you know, maybe that was an oversold narrative. And like because of the pain, pain epidemic, you really did have people who were suffering from pain who like really needed a lot of these prescriptions. And, and you know, maybe some doctors were like scooped up, <laughs> you know, and, and like had their had their licenses revoked or were arrested. And, the, and a lot of their patients, you know, were sort of tarred as. Uh, drug abusers, when in fact they were people suffering from extreme pain who now had no way to get a prescription and now are living with more pain. So I've seen both sides of those story of that story, yeah, and I'm curious yeah. how how you see it. How, how do you how much blame do you put on specific doctors? Yeah, Adam, that's that's a, a great question. There are a number of factors in play here. I myself am a physician. I'm an internal medicine doc, uh, and I prescribed opioids in the past. And there has been a sea change in how we prescribe those opioids over the last five to 10 years. Uh, what I will say is that there was a lot that we just didn't know in the 90s and early 2000s. And with the emphasis on prescribing to take care of pain, there was a real pressure to make sure that we took care of pain. And that led partly to the result, the results of uh, an increase in the number of opioids that were prescribed. Um, because we didn't have great guidelines, because we didn't know a lot, it's, you, can't, you can't really penalize physicians for doing what they did more largely. I mean, the vast majority of physicians don't operate with a bad intent. They want to take care of their patients. They want to do a good job, and they want their patients to get better. Uh, of course, there are always a subset of, of physicians who may not act in that way. Uh, but I would say, I mean, myself included, we, we had our patients' best intentions at heart, and we wanted to do what we could to take care of them. Yeah, it's a it's a tough position to be in as a doctor, right? Like um, to have someone come to you and say, hey, I really need this medication. Maybe it's your first time seeing them and they're saying, I've got really bad pain. And you're sitting there going, well, am I am I feeding an addiction but writing this prescription? Does this person really need help? I mean, it's really complex. And it's really complicated. And I think the bigger question here is. Let's say you have somebody who you want to you want to provide medication to, you want to take care of their pain, but you're also concerned that they may have an issue with addiction or dependence or a substance use disorder. Uh, it's really important to also look at that piece and try to help that person mm. out in a way to get them into treatment if if possible. And that is a, a totally different. It's a paradigm shift from where we were 20 years ago. That just wasn't something people were thinking about back then. 
Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't nearly as common as it is now. Um, well, tell me a little bit about the work that you do at the CDC trying to tackle this. I mean, this is I, I don't like to call problems intractable because it makes it sound like they can't be solved. But there's a lot of different dimensions feeding into this. There's the corporate piece of it. There's the addiction piece of it. There's the pain piece of it. Um, and the numbers have been rising. And it's really devastating. How do you go about trying to resolve this? We have a number of programs in place to try and get at the root of the opioid crisis and try to provide some interventions to address the problem as it stands. Uh, I, I want to take a step back and say that this is a problem that uh, is larger than CDC as an agency. It, ta- it takes multiple agencies at all levels of government coming together to be able to address the crisis. So at the federal government, you're thinking NIH is doing basic research and and has other programs in place. The Food and Drug Administration is looking at other uh, treatment modalities. And then you have CDC who is looking at the public health arm. And then you have local health departments and hospitals and physicians who are tackling this uh, on Mm. the ground and, and really trying to figure out, hey, how do we move forward and are seeing this every day? Uh, I think one of the, the larger questions that, that we have at CDC is how do we get good data and how do we identify and track and understand the number of people that are affected, uh, both as the number of folks that are overdosing and the number of people that are dying. Uh, and then also understand what types of drugs people are using, where are they getting them uh, and how are they using them? Are, are they using heroin and fentanyl or are they using prescription opioids? So. There are a lot of questions here and uh, a lot of work that has gone into and is going into uh, addressing the crisis. So uh, let's break down those different agencies a little bit. The NIH, you said they do research. It's a research organization, right? Yeah, it's a biomedical research organization. Yeah. Um, And the CDC covers public health. Just just break down that distinction a little bit for me. Yeah, <laughs> it can be it can be very confusing, and so so thank you for for asking me to clarify. We we hear all these alphabet things. We're like, okay, I know that has something to do with medicine. Why do we have two of them? Why isn't it just one agency, right? Or so yeah, if, if you can enlighten folks on that, I think it might be helpful. <laughs> yeah, and and there is a long historical context that I won't get into. And so the the CDC was really founded back in the fifties to fight communicable diseases, uh, especially malaria, and mm. and so. And we have come a long way since then, and, and there is a whole portfolio of diseases and public health conditions that we continue to fight. So think about heart disease, uh, stroke, malaria, HIV. Uh, and the center that I work at, within CDC, we focus on injury prevention, where overdoses and, and drug use fall. Uh, and so what we really do is uh, think about what are the approaches that we can take from a public health standpoint to really prevent some of these end outcomes that people are experiencing. So you know, how do we prevent people from overdosing? How do we prevent people from becoming addicted to opioids in the first place? And some of those examples here at CDC are one, uh, guiding physicians to prescribe those opioids in a better way so that they can decrease the risk to their patients. Another way is to prescribe and to distribute a medication called naloxone uh, which is an antidote to these opioids and can actually save lives. So these are the kinds of things we think about when we try to figure out how we save lives over the long term and the opioid crisis. Yeah, it's kind of the, the fact that there's an antidote for opioids is in, incredible to me. Like it's not something that we think of as having a having a cure in a way where <laughs> I mean, it doesn't cure you from addiction, but it can prevent deaths. Yeah, absolutely. Naloxone frankly, it saves lives. And we have the numbers to back us up. We have empirical evidence that that's the case. Uh, and really the challenge is how do we get naloxone into the hands of everyone who has a prescription for opioids, who may be using heroin or fentanyl uh, so that they can uh, save themselves or have a, a bystander save them if they do overdose. Yeah, we, uh, you know, I do work in homelessness around Los Angeles. We do engagement with, you know, unhoused folks in our community. And one of the things that we have started doing is is distributing naloxone um, under the brand name Narcan, if that matters, um, just to like say, hey, you know, because people die of overdoses um, in our neighborhoods. Um, and, you know, it's yeah, it's a nasal spray. And if folks know how to use it, it, it can it can be life saving, uh, which is, yeah, I mean, really critical. Yeah, um, you're looking at around 70,000 people who die of a drug overdose every year. Really? Th- 
Yeah, and you, wow. and you and you two thirds of those are related to opioids, uh, and then you then you think about how many more people must have overdosed uh, uh, before they died or before someone dies, and so that number just be, those numbers become huge, and you can really see the importance of making sure that that naloxone is distributed widely in the community so that people have access to it uh, to prevent someone from dying. Well, tell me a little bit about uh, the work that you did that caused you to get this Sammy Award. For folks, I talked about a little bit in the intro. It's a very prestigious award given to uh, public servants in recognition of remarkable work that you do. Um, and, you know, uh, other people have got, who've gotten this award have saved billions of dollars or, or you know, saved, saved hundreds of thousands of lives in such and such a way. Uh, I'm curious, what is the work that, that you've done that uh, led to this award? Yeah, well, well, first, I want to thank the Sammies for calling attention to the enormity of the opioid crisis. And, and I'm, I'm grateful that, that they're doing that and for recognizing the work that we've done. The, the, the area that I work in specifically relates to what happens when a clinic, a physician, some other type of medical provider is prescribing opioids outside of the bounds of medical practice. So uh, in a nutshell, prescribing opioids that are way too high of a dose uh, without the specific safeguards in place to protect patients. Uh, that is not often the case. So I, I, want, I want to make sure that people understand that this is not, this is not something that, that every physician does. This is, these are certainly providers who are outliers. The, that's, what I, that's the word I was going to use, outliers. These are like uh, the ultimate Dr. Feelgood. These are the people who are really, really behaving irresponsibly or, or perhaps criminally. Yeah. Definitely. And, and what happens is, is that federal law enforcement or state law enforcement, uh, think FBI, uh, HHS office, the Health and Human Services of Office of the Inspector General, uh, or the Drug Enforcement Agency might be bringing a case or, or trying to determine what's going on in these clinics uh, that mm. are negatively affecting patients. Uh, and so what, what, we, what happens is, is that you might have patients who are in chronic pain, uh, and getting high volumes of pain medications, such as opioids, from these physicians in a way that's not safe. You might have people who clearly have an addiction problem, uh, and in our parlance, we'll say an opioid use disorder, and are getting these medications in a way that they shouldn't be. Mm. Or you might have people who are uh, simply seeking to distribute these medications uh, to others. And so, okay, yeah. you know, and so all of these things, I mean, they're, they're not good. Um, and we have to find a way to protect these patients. So let's say you have a physician A who is seeing a thousand patients and you have an enforcement action that all of a sudden goes in and closes that clinic. Mm. Uh, what happens to those 1000 patients who right. may have been on opioids for a long time? Uh, and it doesn't take long for individuals who have been on opioids to have some sort of dependence, to get some sort of withdrawal symptom uh, if they don't have continued medication. And those symptoms are terrible. <laughs> they are not, they're not good, they're not pleasant, and they lead people yeah. to use more to engage in behaviors that might lead them to find more. And so our goal here was really to uh, connect these patients to other treatment providers to be able to, to identify, hey, what, what's going on here? and How can we best help those patients? So you're saying that even when you've got this worst case scenario clinic that is really beyond the pale, uh, that clinic maybe has it probably has some legitimate patients. It has some people who who are really like it, sure it's got some folks who are distributing and or, or whatever, uh, but it also has people who are dependent either. I mean, either they've acquired a dependency or they're, they are maybe just patients who actually have a lot of pain and like they actually need the, the opioids that they're being uh, that, that they were being provided with. And so those patients need to go somewhere. Is, is that what I'm understanding? Right. Yeah. So, so what I would say is you, you have patients who are on chronic pain. I think the jury is still out on whether those opioids are helping those patients with their chronic pain. Mm. Uh, we're, still, we're still trying to understand some of those pieces. It's very complex. Uh, and the other thing to think about is, is the care that those patients are getting safe? Uh, if, if somebody's on too high of a dose, their overdose risk goes up. And so how do you, how do you prevent them from overdosing? And then for those who might have an addiction issue, uh, it's really important that they get in to be seen for potential treatment for, for that addiction. And so, 
Uh, in, in these situations, it's, it's important that we find a way to connect those patients to care. And, and the way we do that, at least from the CDC side, is to make sure that we can connect our, our law enforcement sister agencies here at the federal government level with state health departments that are doing opioid work over the last five to 10 years and really have those connections to be able to help those patients out. This is really great. Honestly, the question I asked you earlier about doctors, right, came from me after we did our segment on the opioid crisis and on, you know, uh, uh, the corporate malfeasance there involved. I read an article in Harper's called The Pain Refugees about folks who were, you know, uh, like on opioids, their doctor gets busted, right, and then they're abandoned. Um, and, you know, folks with extreme pain who, you know, the pain is debilitating, they can't work, their their life is, you know, as miserable as if you had any serious illness or disease. Theirs happens to be pain. And then they're like, where, where do I go? This is the only doctor in town. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm in the yeah. middle of wherever. And you're helping those folks. You're, you're making sure those folks aren't abandoned. Is that the idea? We, we are doing our best. And, and I, I say our best because there are still a, a, a lot of problems here in terms of how individuals can access care uh, in, in the United mm-hmm. States uh, for addiction specifically, but also uh, more largely in terms of healthcare. Okay, so you try to do this by uh, when law enforcement comes in, connecting them with public health or with other health service providers. It strikes me there might be some friction there because law enforcement and health providers or public health agencies work differently. They have have different philosophies, to say the least, about how they deal with people in the world. Um, Yeah, how do you do you find that and how do you negotiate it? Yeah, I, I, I will say that we all exist uh, in our in our alphabet soup of agencies. We all exist in our silos to some sense. <laughs> and so uh, part of our work is how do we break down those silos and pull together collaborations that are effective? Uh, when we when I when I started working on opioids, uh, I, one of the things that we uh, we recognized is that there's already some collaboration between CDC and federal law enforcement agencies, such as the Drug Enforcement Agency. Uh, DEA for short, and the Department of Justice. And so how do we come together to help these patients that are affected? So we had we had conversations and, and I, I, just a, a big shout out to my colleagues over there at DEA and, and the Health and Human Services Office of the Inspector General, who also recognized, hey, there's something we can do here to protect these patients and to help them out. Uh, what, what do we have to do? And one of the ideas that we came up with was how do we get everyone to buy in to connecting with state health departments and providing them with information about an action, an enforcement action against the healthcare provider before that action actually occurs. Uh, That is a sea change in how we do things or how things have been done in the past. Mm. So in the past, an action might occur. So a provider might be arrested, a clinic might close, and then the state health department might find out after the fact. And then the state is trying to figure out, hey, what do we do here? What resources do we have? How do we make sure that these patients are taken care of? And in this situation, what we were able to do is to connect the law enforcement agents in the field uh, in the states with the state health department to have this conversation earlier. So uh, two weeks earlier, three weeks earlier than the anticipated action date so that they can determine, hey, what are the things that we need to do? How do we plan? How do we get our structures in place? How do we, how, what's our plan to get notifications out? All of those things to really be able to respond in a way that's helpful. What's now that's great, but what's it's really interesting to me because I imagine someone at the CDC, you're working on, you know, you're working with viruses, you're in a lab, you're doing drugs, stuff like that. What you're describing is bureaucracy. You're managing <laughs> what you're what you're doing is you're changing the way the bureaucracy works. You're you're saying like, okay, before you go bust the guy, hey, give a phone call to uh, you know, the state public health and you know, fill out this form instead of that form, or you know, or or let's let's work on a process here. It's just sort of people you know, it, it's you're you're altering workflows, essentially. And that's not something I ever thought of as being a public uh, part of public health work. Yeah, I, <laughs> I'll say that uh, I, I have a desk job. I, I work <laughs> I, I work in an office. I, I have a desk job. Uh, I, I see patients uh, 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 every, every every so often, you know, you, you still see patients as well as a doctor. I do. Uh, it's it's uh, it's very meaningful for me. It's yeah. it's how I've been trained, and and I continue to do so. I I of course have not been able to do so in the last couple of months because of working mm. on COVID nineteen and 
And I, I provide my time pro bono to a clinic that sees underserved patients, patients without health insurance uh, here in Atlanta. Awesome. And, and in doing that, um, it, during COVID-19, the clinic has had to close because of not having the, the measures in place to be able what a, to protect people. What a shame, because that's the kind of clinic that we most need to be open, <laughs> frankly, is yeah, serving underserved people. It's a, it's a safeguard for the community. So, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to work with them to do some telehealth uh, in the near cool. future. So uh, we're working on it. But yeah, I, I mean, my, my day job is, is very much uh, based at a desk. If I'm not doing some kind of emergency investigation uh, related to an outbreak somewhere. And so uh, it, I like to think of it not as red tape, but as pulling people together. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and really pulling people together in a way that is effective and establishes long-term relationships so that we can do this work more effectively in the future. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I like the way you put that, the pulling people together, because it makes me think about how much of the response to any problem is a question of organization. Uh, I learned that a lot from, I talked to a lot of folks in the labor movement. They always stress organizing, you know, you got to get people together and have conversations and work out a process, et cetera, if you want to get anything done. Um, and you're sort of describing the same thing that like, wow, the real challenge is uh, maybe not that, well, I don't want to say what is the real challenge, but a big challenge is not just the drugs or the medicine or, you know, even, uh, say with something like COVID-19, the virus itself, it is organizing the people in order to address the problem in an effective way. That seems very true, but also counterintuitive. This is absolutely about organizing people in every sense of the word. So, we're trying to organize people at the federal level. There are people trying to organize, be get organized at the state and local level. You've got provider groups, you've got insurance groups, uh, you've got addiction treatment professionals. I mean, you've got, uh, there are all sorts of people involved here, all sorts of sectors and stakeholders. And the only way we're gonna deal with the opioid crisis is by pulling people together to address every issue along the way. Man, that, that, it's just such a profound, such a profound insight to me because it's, it's like, you know, literally if you need to, I don't know, get something done in your community or your family, you need to, you know, if you need to do a yard sale at your house, you're like, hey, you need to, someone needs to take all the stuff out of the yard. Someone needs to make little signs. Someone needs to do like solving any problem. You need to give everybody a job, get everybody on the same page. It's like this fundamental thing of getting stuff done. And that's still the problem at our, at, at a larger level. You're, it's fundamentally the same thing, just on a much bigger scale. Maybe this is a very basic insight, but it's kind of blowing my mind right now. <laughs> no, it's, it's, uh, I, I think you're, you're exactly right. Um, and uh, I am, I'm happy to open the doors on what we do. So, so <laughs> thank you, Adam. It's, it, this is uh, about pulling people together. And if you think about any one issue within the opioid crisis, whether it's uh, treating folks who have addiction, whether it's distributing naloxone so that people have access to it, whether it's making sure that there are enough treatment providers to provide treatment to all of these individuals, all of those things take a number of organizations coming together to make sure that the resources are in place to be able to do that. So let's take naloxone as an example. You gotta, you gotta be able to get the drug. You gotta be able to pay for the drug. You've gotta be able to figure out where you should put it. I mean, yeah. all of those things require multiple agencies to be able to do that. Yeah, just every single step of that. How do you then get the drug into the hands of the people who need it? Like literally who is handing it to the folks? I guess the insight I'm coming to is like every, every problem is a logistics problem. In addition to whatever kind of problem it is, it's also just logistically, how are you, how are you handling this? Um, how are you pulling people together? That is so cool. Well, look, I, I have a lot more questions for you, and I want to ask you specifically about your your personal story and how you came to this work. But we got to take a really quick break. We'll be right back with more Vikram Krishnasamy. As a factually listener, you're probably aware of my unwavering commitment to online privacy. Well, Delete Me has been an indispensable tool for me. For many years, long before they even started advertising on this show, I've been using their wonderful service. In today's digital landscape, you know, it's alarmingly easy for data brokers to traffic your personal information online. In fact, I would almost guarantee that your personal information is on multiple data broker sites on the internet right now. It's not even the dark web, it's the regular web. These data brokers may be peddling and exchanging your name, phone number, and home address, 
all without your knowledge. And trying to locate and remove all this data yourself can feel like an impossible task because there can be dozens of these sites. But that is what Delete Me does for you. Delete Me's team of experts scours the depths and the breadth of the internet to locate and remove your personal data. Within just seven days, you'll receive a comprehensive report detailing their findings and what they have removed. It can be hard to believe, but approximately 41% of Americans find themselves vulnerable to various forms of online harassment, and this means doxing, scams, and even identity theft, all of which pose significant threats to your financial security and could potentially derail career opportunities. I mean, I used to get weird people calling my cell phone all hours of the day or night until I signed up for Delete Me and it cut it right out. So if you want to safeguard yourself like that and live with the peace of mind that experts are hunting down and removing your personal information every three months, then check out Delete Me. Go to joindeleteme.com Adam and get 20% off for all consumer plans with the code Adam. That's joindeleteme.com Adam. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Okay, we're back with Vikram. Uh, so Vikram, you you were trained as a doctor. What brought you into public service? What what was the moment where you were like, "Hey, that's that's where I want to spend my time." I, I am I'm the child of immigrants, so my parents uh, came over here in the 1970s. They met at Ohio State University. I think it's the Ohio State University now. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, they, they, they got married. They, they live in Columbus, Ohio. They stay, they've stayed there ever since they, they went to college there. And I think one of the important lessons for me all growing up was that they conveyed to us, my siblings and myself, that say, they said, hey, you know, Vikram, you've, you've, you've been given an opportunity that other people in the world don't get. Uh, you know, we're immigrants. You've been, you've been given this awesome opportunity to get an education. Uh, it's important that you do some good with that. And so, in, my, in the back of my mind, there was always this element of trying to do some public service or going towards a, a public service career. Uh, I, my training is based in internal medicine, and, and so we're, we're physicians for adults, basically. I don't, I don't see kids. I, I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know how to take care of kids, so for better or worse. But um, mm-hmm. so I'm trained to see uh, adults. And so in my training, we call that residency training, I did a residency that was focused in taking care of patients who didn't have health insurance or didn't have access to health care in the traditional sense. Uh, and I also spent five months of my residency taking care of patients in Malawi. Um, and so, you know, those two experiences really drove home to me the need for uh, a strong public service sector to be able to address some of the larger problems that we face and, and yeah. experience around the world, but also specifically in this country the richest country on earth. And so uh, it, it quickly became apparent to me that with all of those experiences and my background, that this was an important way to go. And ultimately, I came to CDC to do something called the Epidemic Intelligence Service uh, back in 2016. And what's the Epidemic Intelligence Service? Yeah, it's that, it sounds really interesting, right? When I say something like intelligence service at the end. <laughs> yeah, wait, that's I'm like, hold on a second. That sounds like you just dropped like the coolest name for a <laughs> government program I've ever heard. The Epidemic Intelligence Service. It, it sounds like this sounds like the name of like a CBS procedural drama is what it sounds like about <laughs> medical investigators. What the hell is it? Yeah, the, the Epidemic Intelligence Service is a two-year program for physicians and uh, individuals who also have their PhDs uh, to come into CDC service to uh, uh, understand how public health works, but also how to investigate outbreaks that might happen anywhere in the world and to build expertise in uh, overall public health within the federal government, uh, as well as state and local governments. And so, uh, I spent two years investigating foodborne outbreaks uh, as part of my as part of my training, and then mm. ultimately I stayed on afterwards. Got it. 
Well, let's get into that food, foodborne outbreaks. You said like what in particular? So think about, uh, well, what's a good example here? So E. coli. So someone, there might be uh, an E. coli outbreak. So think about uh, somebody eating a hamburger that may have been contaminated. Uh, and part of my job was trying to figure out, okay, what was the source of that outbreak? Where did it come from? Yeah. And who's getting sick? And so I might get sent somewhere in the country where an outbreak might be going on to help try and solve or investigate that outbreak. Got it. So that's that's what the CDC does, is that like when there's an outbreak of almost uh, of uh, any disease, um, whether it be I mean, oh, there opioid addiction and foodborne outbreaks are very different in some ways. <laughs> but, yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> but they're similar in some ways in, in how the CDC tackles them. Oh, what, can you break that down for me? Yeah, I, I, I think the the. One of the biggest surprises, at least to my friends and colleagues, are that CDC is a huge umbrella organization that focuses on a number of different problems. Yeah, uh, outbreak investigation is traditionally a bread and butter for us, where you know we we do outbreak investigations routinely, and and have been for decades. And then and then you think about any other public health problem that we face, whether it's hypertension, heart disease, or the opioid crisis. Uh, and there are probably there's probably a program here at CDC to try and address that in some shape or form. And that's not the traditional send somebody out to investigate an outbreak, but it's also uh, it, it it also could be something as simple as what's the data say and where are we getting the data? Uh, and I don't want to say that that's simple. That's a hard question. Uh, but but in terms of conceptually, there there has to be someone out there within the federal government who's trying to understand what the scope of these problems are. And that's one element of what we do here at CDC. Yeah, it's like something is killing Americans <laughs> and, and and it's, oh, oh, wow, it seems to be killing a lot of them. What is it? Why? Where is it coming from? How do we what interventions can we take to reduce it? Is that the basic the basic questions you're asking every time? Yeah, I, I think I think, Adam, you're capturing it pretty well in, in a nutshell. It's <laughs> thank it's, you very much. <laughs> You know, it, it, we, we've got to understand what is it that are making Americans sick or ill or killing Americans. Uh, and we also have to think upstream are what are the issues that might be causing some of these issues in the first place or some of these diseases in the first place? And, and what can we do to prevent that? So, I mean, if, if we take opioid overdose as an example, what are the things that lead to someone uh, actually overdosing on opioids? And so if we walk one step earlier and say, okay, can we put out some guidelines on how we should be prescribing those opioids? And CDC did that in 2016, and they've, they've been really, really useful. I remember before 2016 not having uh, guidance, and after 2016, I mean, it's just it's just a sea change in terms of recommendations and what we should do. So, Let, so as in like educating doctors, like here's a here's a leaflet literally from the CDC saying, hey, keep this in mind next time you're writing that RX. Yeah, in in... In a nutshell, that's exactly what it is. But it's it's even it's more than that in terms of it's a synthesis or uh, a, a combination of all of the literature that's out there and all mm. the studies that have been done and says, hey, this is what the data says that we should be doing. Here here's what we don't know. Here's what we know, and here's how you can decrease the risk to your patients. Yeah, uh, you won the. Uh... Uh, the, the Sammy Award that you specifically won uh, is the Emerging Leaders Award, which is for for a younger person. Uh, I won't ask how old you are, but but you're, <laughs> I could I could tell you're not the you, you know you're not one of those old gray beards at the CDC. <laughs> um, what are your goals for your? I'm I'm curious as someone who you know is entered public service uh, as a career. What are your what are your aspirations moving forward? My aspirations are really centered around what can I do for the to to have the greatest impact and do the greatest good for the for the largest number of people, um, and and that's not simply working on a large program that affects a, a huge number of people. We spoke earlier that it's also very important to me to be able to see patients uh, who don't have the same access that that other patients might have. They don't have the same health insurance that I have uh, with my job and within the federal government. And so I, I think for me, it's, it's continuing to do work that is aligned with that overall personal mission. Uh, and and I, I can't predict at all how that's going to shake out. I will say, I didn't see COVID-19 coming. I mean, I'm sure there are people out there who, who said, hey, and, and I know there are people out there who said, hey, coronaviruses are an issue. 
uh, we're gonna there's gonna be a pandemic at some point. Uh, but but I did not know that 2020 was gonna be the year that we would say here we are. <laughs> so um, I, I I just. I, I just take every day as it comes and and try to yeah. really adhere to that mission as we go along. Well, look, what I what I love about talking to people from agencies like yours is that they're filled with people like you who got into it, you know, hey, you could you could have made a lot of money as a plastic surgeon in Beverly Hills or whatever. There's 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 lucrative options out there for for a doctor such as yourself or someone as competent as you. But okay, I, I actually give a shit about public service. I'm gonna go into public service at the CDC and actually try to make Americans healthier. And that's actually what you spend your whole day doing. And I and the same is true of how how many thousands of your colleagues, right? Um uh, and that's that's yeah. like critical work that almost none of us know is being done. It's really cool to hear about. Um, at the same time, uh, you know, I, I feel like we have a another epidemic, a psychic epidemic of, you know, we we we're sort of losing faith in some of these agencies, you know, like like our, our confidence in uh, the CDC and, you know, other agencies is eroding a bit. I know I'm not going to ask you to speak to, you know, the broader, uh, uh, issue of coronavirus and et cetera. Um, but I mean, do you have that concern about, uh, the public's interaction with these, with these agencies such as the CDC? Yeah. And, and, and now just one, one aside real quick, and then I'll dive into your question is that I actually have a twin sister who, is a cardiologist. He's a heart wow. doctor. <laughs> we talk all the time about where we are in our careers. And of course, she makes multiples of the income that I do. Uh, and, and we and we often talk about our different trajectories. And, you know, I respect her for what she does. And she says to me, you know, I, I really respect you for what you do and the decisions you have made uh, along. along but who, who do your path. parents respect more? <laughs> That's the question. <laughs> Well, I think I think the challenge, and this kind of gets gets at your current question, is how do you explain what public health is and what yeah. we do? And you know, to my parents who, who had no concept of public health before I even went into this, that has been a real challenge. I think I've, we've been able to do that uh, over the years. But when public health works, you don't hear about mm -hmm. it, and we stay in the background. You just so don't for get example, sick. You just you don't get sick uh, if if the vaccination ca camp, vaccination campaigns are working. There isn't a measles right. outbreak, for example. Um, and, and so these are, these are issues that are not at the forefront of the public's mind when we think about what public health does. And I think the bigger challenge for all of us is, say, is to say to everyone out there, the work that we do is critical to protecting the lives of all Americans. Yeah, I, th I agree that that's, that that's really important. Um, I just worry that the message doesn't get through to the public, right? Or, or that um, especially when... You know, agencies are in the news. They're only in the news for like one little topic. You don't see the rest of the work that the agency is doing. Right. Um, sure. Coronavirus is uh, is a clusterfuck in many ways. Right. But like at the same time, we've got, uh, you know, really dedicated public servants working on issues such as such as the opioid crisis. Uh, I don't know. I kind of feel like we have to get better at telling those stories. Do you feel that way? Definitely. We, we do have to get better at telling those stories. And to the earlier question about eroding trust in public institutions, I think it's critical that we have a strong public sector workforce of individuals who are willing to do this work because at the end of the day, without those strong institutions, the country yeah. won't work and it doesn't work. And I think we've seen that over the last several years of uh, the work that we do when we do it and it works, it, it, the, the, the effects are, are critical to the, our success as a nation. Yeah, it's... Uh, I don't know. The, the problem is how do we d not descend into cynicism, right? Like um, I uh, I'm such a fan of the work that you do at the CDC. Right. Um, and then we see, OK, the CDC puts out a guideline and then retracts the guideline, puts it out again, retracts the guideline. Right. And uh, it's very easy to see that happen to go, ah, the CDC, ah, they all suck over there. They're always retracting their guidelines right after they put them out. Ah, it's so confusing. And instead, we need people to say, no, 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 we we need this. We need to improve this process at the same time that we safeguard what's working. It's just a complicated thing to ask of people. And it's uh, I don't know. It's so easy for folks to fall into cynicism. And, and that's my I don't know. That's a concern I have. I don't have a question. That's just what I'm concerned about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think we are in an environment where information is so accessible at everyone's fingertips. The challenge for all of us within the federal service and other agencies is how do we provide information that is accessible and adheres to scientific rigor 
and cuts through everything else so that people get it, understand it, uh, and act on that information to do what's important for us. I mean, in my selfishly saying public health, yeah. <laughs> but really to act in a way that protects everyone and, and themselves and ensures that they live a life that is healthy and productive uh, and meaningful to them. Well, I want to talk a little bit more. Uh, I, I want to go back to something that you said earlier. You were talking about the CDC, the NIH, the FDA, and then you said local public health, right? Um, uh, local hospitals, local clinics, things like that. And that is, my understanding, a really critical part of our public health infrastructure. It doesn't even have an alphabet name. It's it's all the different local agencies. My understanding is that those have been cut a lot in recent years and that that's an infrastructure that is uh, not as healthy as we want it to be. And I, I want to know if you could speak to that at all. Yeah, I, I will say I don't have exact numbers here, but I have I, I we I think we all recognize that public health funding has taken a, a cut over the last 10 years and 10 to 15 years since the, the Great Recession. And it's important as we move forward and take lessons from the current pandemic, as well as other crises that we face, the opioid crisis, uh, the HIV epidemic, et cetera, that we recognize increasing that public health workforce is important to our success in fighting these problems. Uh, you, you can't fight these problems with a diminished workforce. And, and I just, you just simply can't do that. And so as we move forward, we, we, we learn our lessons here with the COVID-19 pandemic and, and others. Uh, we have a real opportunity to position ourselves for success in the future. I, I hope that we do that. I'm going to be here along the way to, to fight for that. Uh, and and I'm, I'm really hoping that we yeah, get Yeah, me too. Well, let, let's uh, close by bringing it back to the opioid crisis for a little bit. Um, you know, it strikes me again that you know, we've been talking about it as a public health issue, but it's also a very personal issue to so many Americans, like you said, uh, because hundreds of thousands of people are have died. Uh, many more are addicted. I'm sure there's folks listening who've been impacted by it personally. I've personally known folks who have passed away from uh, overdose. Um, and I'm sure folks listening have as well. And I'm sure many folks listening live in communities that are that are really impacted by it. Um, and they see it in their own communities. Um, like what? What do you, what what do you say to someone who you know say has a family member struggling with it with with opioid addiction and is and is, you know, struggling to figure out how to deal with that? Yeah, I, first I will say I, 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 that we all here at CDC and and uh, elsewhere recognize that uh, addiction is not a personal failure, and and that's that is a message that I have for everyone, and that. Uh, it addiction is a challenging medical problem. It's a chronic medical problem and one that we need to treat as such and provide the resources to anyone suffering from addiction to be able to get that yeah. treatment. Uh, for opioid addiction, specifically opioid use disorder, we have treatments that work. We just don't have enough people to get those treatments to the individuals that need them. Really? Uh, yeah. Yeah, and and so how do we how do we do that? How do we how do we get that treatment to the individuals that need them, where they need them, uh, so that they can uh, treat the problem that they're facing? And what are those treatments? You mentioned naloxone, um, and which is just I think prevents death. But like you're talking about, like hey, we we know how to help people kick the addiction. We know we know how to help people manage their mm. addiction and uh, potentially recover. You know, I think there are a lot of definitions of what recovery means. Ultimately, it's it's a it's a personal uh, definition of of recovery. But we do have medications that work, and these medications, though they're not perfect, though they, though they don't work for everyone, uh, they do work and they help. And so the important thing is that we get those medications to people uh, when they when they are in a position where they need it. So tell me a little bit more about what that gap looks like. Because again, we're talking about logistics, right? You said we know what to do. We're la we lack the people, we lack the resources. Um, what's like your ideal response, right? Uh, for uh, say for a town that has a, you know, bad opioid problem that, you know, has uh, a lot of folks who are struggling with addiction and it's, you know, causing deaths and it's causing despair. Um, what What is the kind of, in your utopia, 
<laughs> that, that, what, what is the perfect response that we wish that we could have? And, and what are the barriers that are stopping us from getting there? Yeah, you know, in, in, in a perfect world, uh, I, I, I would, we would all be able to stop opioids from getting into the community in the mm. first place. And, uh, you know, we, we, there, there are both sources of prescription opioids as well as uh, illicit opioids, such as fentanyl and heroin, and we'd be able to stop that. Uh, but, but that's really, that's really hard. And so if we're thinking about a scenario where people already have issues with substance use disorders and addiction to opioids, uh, a, a perfect world would have an opportunity for each of those individuals to be seen by a healthcare provider to provide them with specific individualized treatment. Uh, and those individuals would also have access to a counselor who could provide them with uh, counseling and, and behavioral health uh, uh, treatment so that they could get both of both the medication and the behavioral health treatment to have uh, what I hope would be a successful recovery, recognizing that it doesn't always work but that people will be in a position to be able to get the resources they need to recover. So you're talking like we've got a, we've got a clinic folks can go to, maybe we've got street medicine. We've got like, you know, medical workers doing outreach and, and helping folks. Um, and we've got counseling as well in enough numbers to serve every single person who's suffering from that. Uh, and I definitely can say we don't have that now. <laughs> Based on my experience working, working with folks in L.A., people are like, where can I get help? And there's no clinics nearby and there's no one coming to do that outreach. Yeah, it's it's a real challenge, Adam. And our success in addressing the opioid crisis is really dependent upon how we get treatment to people that really need it. And yeah. that's it's a separate issue from the prevention problem, which is how do we make sure that people don't get addicted to opioids in the first place? You know, that, that's, a, that's a separate issue, but in terms of making sure that people have access, we've got to get, we've got to increase the number of people who are able to provide treatment to these individuals, to individuals who are affected by opioid use disorder. And we've got to decrease some of the regulatory barriers to making sure that individuals can get treatment. So it's, it's something that I hope will happen in, in the future and is critical to our success in addressing the opioid crisis. I mean, are you optimistic about the the future of <laughs> the opioid crisis? I mean, you're 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 working on a day to day. Does it, you know? Sometimes I feel like when you're working on social problems, you can have one of two attitudes. You can have, hey, we're making progress with this big social problem, and we're you know we're going to get the genie back in the bottle, and and hey, here we go. Or you say you know, I'm just trying to help the people I can, right? <laughs> Which is when you, where, where do you, where do you uh, find yourself falling there? I, I, I am an eternal optimist, I will say, so maybe I'm a bit biased. <laughs> but I, I will say that I am optimistic here for a couple of reasons. One is, is that we have the political will to tackle the opioid crisis. I mean, I think everyone has seen that over the last five years. We have a commitment from organizations across the country to tackle the opioid crisis. We have a recognition, a widespread recognition that there is a problem. Uh, we have dedicated funding across the country to multiple agencies to address the crisis. So, you know, we, we have really pulled together people in a way to really be successful in addressing the crisis. Do we have more to do? Definitely. But have we come a long way in the last 15 years? We, we sure have. And what do you think has cause that recognition. Um, I mean, the, you know, the, the bluntest version of, of it I've ever heard is America started, you know, taking drug addiction seriously as a public health issue. Once affluent white people started suffering from it <laughs> right in their communities. Um, I feel like that might be some of the story. Um, but I imagine you might have a fuller view. I'm just curious. I, I think what I would say is the opioid crisis is not New. It's been going on for over a hundred years. It goes. It goes way back to before the 1900s, and so I, I, one of the issues that probably caused a lot of the 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 current focus on the opioid crisis is the escalation in the number of deaths over the last 20 years. I mean, you've seen you've seen a huge increase in the number of overdoses and the number of deaths. And yeah. this is not a problem that you can ignore. It doesn't, it's, it's not something that's going to go away simply by ignoring it. And so safeguards and interventions and policies needed to be put in place to make sure that this problem is contained and that we can successfully address it. Yeah. I mean, this showed up in 
just straight up demographic data. Like when you look at life expectancies of, you know, entire demographic groups like white white men have been affected by. Oh, that's my understanding. Um, yeah. Uh, by the opioid crisis. So, yeah, life, life expectancy did go down. And, you know, the opioid crisis is not a sole contributor to that. But uh, without the opioid crisis, uh, we'd be in a better position than we are now. Uh, for folks who let's end on this note, um, because I'm, I'm inspired by your commitment to public service and, and the fact that you've, you know, devoted your devoted your career to it. Um, for folks who are listening and saying, God, that sounds great. I want to I want to do that. What do you <laughs> what do you say to them or how do you encourage them to try to take that step? I think there are ways to get involved in your community at at every level. I mean, every community has a need to uh, have a higher volunteer participation to be able to address the problems that that we face locally. I mean, for me, yeah. that's 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 volunteering in a clinic and seeing patients. For for other people, that might be figuring out: is there an organization that I can work with that distributes naloxone, or uh, is there a syringe service program, which is a program that is really engaged around harm reduction? Uh, protecting individuals who may be using drugs. Is there a certain service program that I can volunteer at to uh, provide services to individuals that really need it? I mean, there there is, uh, the great thing about America is that there are a number of organizations who are doing incredible work who always have a need for increased numbers of people to help them. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, so, so uh, Adam, as you referenced earlier, I mean, this is this is all work that we can do and become involved in. Uh, to really fight for the greater good here in terms of dealing with the opioid crisis. That's amazing. Uh, but uh, you said something, and now I have to ask you a follow-up question. I'm so sorry. That, was, that <laughs> would have been a wonderful note to end on. But I have curiosity here that I must follow through on. Um, you said harm reduction, and and I want to get it because that is that is a topic I've covered in the past, and I just wanted to get your, your thoughts on it because um, – uh, yeah, I, I think it does follow that once you see addiction as a as a health problem, um, you you know need to start treating it a little bit differently. Um, and so I wanted to, yeah, can you can you speak about harm reduction as a strategy as opposed to you know maybe what we were doing a couple decades ago? Yeah, in, in, harm reduction is to to me has been about meeting people where they are. And when you look at addiction, not everybody is in the same place in terms of whether they want treatment or in a position to accept treatment. Uh, and there are lots of things that we can do to decrease the consequences of drug use. And naloxone is a prime example of that. So uh, how do we make sure that we can get naloxone into the hands of people that are using drugs or to the community members that may have an interaction with somebody who's using drugs to better protect those individuals? That is a prime example of how we decrease the risk of someone having an overdose death. Uh, and so it's it's a critical intervention in helping us uh, stem the tide in the opioid crisis. Yeah, it's a real it's a real sea change in the way that we've looked at it, because, you know, I grew up in the war on drugs era, which which demonized, of course, d drug dealers, but also drug takers as as a moral failing and as something that you want to stamp out. And instead, it looks at it and says, no, this is a this is a health problem. It's a it's a medical problem that has been with humanity for a long time and has gotten more intense in recent years. And, and our first, our first duty should be to try to reduce the harms and make sure first we should make sure that people don't die. <laughs> and then we should make sure that uh, they are as well as possible and helping treat the addiction is like part of that, but it's no longer saying, Hey, if you're, if you're hooked on something, fuck you. <laughs> right. It's like, if you're hooked on something, we're still going to try to help, you not die an early death and not suffer, right? This is part of what keeps me optimistic in that we have, over the last 15 to 20 years, had an increasing recognition, widespread recognition, and acceptance yeah. of harm reduction as a philosophy yeah. in terms of treating drug addiction. And I like to equate it to other chronic, chronic medical problems that we have in terms of I mean, how do we prevent high blood pressure and diabetes? We ask people to go out and exercise and make sure they eat well. And that's, that's not harm reduction in the traditional sense, but we're really still trying to make sure that we prevent the onset of mm. uh, uh, someone from getting, the, the onset of someone getting a really adverse consequence. So, you know, for example, if someone's diabetes gets way out of control and they get their foot amputated, that's bad. And so if we can prevent someone from getting diabetes in the first place, that's, that's great. But if you 
it's also important if they still have diabetes to make sure their foot doesn't get amputated. Like, and oh, to yes, yes. Reduce yeah. the harm of the disease. Yeah, exactly. And so it's, it's really important even within that sense of people who are diagnosed with the disease, how do we prevent the consequences of that disease process in the first place? So think high blood pressure. How do we stop someone from getting a heart attack or their kidneys going, going bad? Uh, or if they have diabetes, how do we prevent them from getting a stroke or heart attack or having their foot amputated, those kinds of things. And yeah. Uh, we need to treat addiction like a chronic medical problem and make sure that individuals have access to the care that they really need. Uh, and this is uh, treatment with medications, repeated visits to physicians who have close monitoring of individuals who are affected, uh, and, and success is out there. It, it can be done. The stigma is so deep, though, that people have in them about, you know, uh, like even people who, uh, you know, do struggle with addiction put the stigma on themselves sometimes, you know, and, and say, Oh God, I, I don't deserve help because I'm hooked on this. And it's certainly something that people say about others, but have you seen a, a change in that attitude as well? Stigma is, is so, so hard. And, and I, this is another piece that keeps me optimistic in that I, I do feel like the stigma is, is changing. I think yeah. that we have a much better recognition that the opioid crisis is widespread, affects a huge number of individuals. And this is not something that we can simply ignore and have it go away. It, it takes dedicated effort and interventions, interventions that, that we do have uh, to be able to address the crisis. Well, I really appreciate you for putting in that effort. <laughs> and I appreciate you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for being here, Vikram. Adam, it's been a real pleasure. I really appreciate the time. And, uh, you know, let me know if you ever like to have me on in the future. Oh, we'll check back in in five years and we'll find out how you uh, <laughs> single handedly solve the opioid crisis. Uh, you'll you'll tell us that whole story when you come back in a couple of years. Well, Adam, hey, thanks. Thanks a lot. And I hope you all have a, a good rest of, you know, however lost the rest of the pandemic lasts. I hope you stay safe and, and uh, everything goes well. You as well. Thank you so much, Vikram. Well, thank you once again to Vikram for coming on the show. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. If you did, please consider leaving us a comment or a rating wherever you subscribe. It really does help us out quite a lot. You can also drop me an email with what you might like to see on the show in the future at factually at adamconover.net. I want to thank our producers, Dana Wickens and Sam Roudman, our engineer, Ryan Connor, Andrew WK for our theme song. I want to thank Falcon Northwest for building me the incredible gaming PC that I'm recording this episode on and that I use to stream video games on Twitch at twitch.tv slash Adam Conover. You can also find me on social media at Adam Conover, wherever you get your social media. And my website is adamconover.net. Is that enough different permutations of my name? I hope it is. Well, hey, thanks so much for tuning in. We'll find you next week on Factually. And please, until then, stay curious. That was a HeadGum Podcast.